Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in, as always. Today's guest is David Sampson, former team president of the Montreal Expos and the Miami Marlins. Yes, that's right. David Sampson on the Jonah Carey Podcast. A very interesting conversation, as you can probably imagine. Uh, I'll lay this out, and I talk a little bit about it in the podcast. Scapegoats are easy, and... The way that the Expos came to their demise is that the people who bought the Expos before Jeffrey Laurie and David Sampson, before MLB, was a consortium of multi-billionaire companies based in Quebec and Canada, and none of them did anything. They all ponied up the equivalent of 10 cents and then just said, ah, you're on your own. And everything that happened afterwards was their efforts to cover their own asses, basically, whether it was vilifying Sampson or Laurie or Bud Selig or anybody else. Does that mean that uh, Jeffrey Loria and his uh, stepson, Je- uh, David Sampson, handled everything perfectly. It definitely does not mean that. Uh, and it certainly does not mean that when it comes to Miami Marlins, because at that point, what they tried to do is basically extort the local government into giving them a stadium. You know, we're going to move to San Antonio. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And I asked Sampson about all this stuff. And we got into it. And he said, look, you know, these were, well, I don't want to give it away. I'll let you hear the answer. But the bottom line was, you know, they did this because those were the rules of the game, and the people who are to blame the most are the people who implemented the system, you know, that this can be taken advantage of, and there are other business people who would have done the same. So, again, I am completely against public financing for stadiums uh, beyond whatever actual economic benefit there that is involved, but if you're on the other side of the coin and you're trying to make money off of a broken system, it's not necessarily morally wonderful or whatever, but these are the this is the hand that you're played, and they play that hand. So sort of a nuanced conversation. I don't vilify the guy, and I don't applaud the guy. You know, we sit and we chat and we listen, and we get a better feel for the situation. Uh, interesting cat, too. He just finished running seven marathons in seven different continents in seven days, so that was pretty interesting, too. Sorry, my dog Piper is in the background making a lot of noise. Anyway, uh, and it was a very interesting chat. So I do hope you enjoy it. Uh, a little different uh, different kind of guest, and... Uh, yeah, I don't know that David Sampson has been this candid for, what, an hour about this kind of stuff ever, probably? So, I don't know, a scoop or something, maybe? Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, it is the latest edition of the John Carey Podcast. It is with David Sampson. All right, David Sampson, we're now recording. We went right into it. What is the triple seven and why are you in pain? We're going to have a whole long conversation, but I need to know this because you started to tell me and I'm agape and aghast at this. Well, only a hundred people in the world have ever done what we just completed. Holy cow. Including our team. We, a group of 16 people together and we ran seven marathons in seven days on seven continents, starting <laughs> in Antarctica on January 30th and ending in Miami on February 5th. 
You obviously do not follow any of us on social media, but I forgive you. <laughs> I got off of all social media. That's the reason. I got rid of uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I just used to auto-tweet uh, articles and podcasts. So there you go. I find social media to be a blight on society. That is the reason that I don't follow anybody. I don't follow uh, presidents. I don't follow prime ministers. I don't follow baseball writers. I don't follow anybody. It's fine. It's just an extra four minutes of the podcast introducing. <laughs> That's fair. All right. So let's start with this. What what possesses somebody to and we're going to bounce around a lot. We're going to talk about, you know, how you got into baseball and all that. But what possesses somebody to even attempt something like this? It's the desire I have to be extraordinary because I'm so ordinary. I'm I'm, I'm short. I can't dunk. I can't hit a fastball. I can't golf. I can sort of play tennis and ping pong, but running is just something you don't need to be good at. You just need to be disciplined. And I love raising money for charity. So this really started back in 06 when I became the first Major League Baseball or any sports executive ever to do the Hawaii Ironman. And I raised $250,000 for charity. And that was just, uh it takes discipline to do an Ironman. Anyone can bike, swim, and run and cry and go to the bathroom in their pants. It doesn't <laughs> take talent to do that. Uh, so it took me 15 and a half hours, but I became an Ironman and I got the tattoo to prove it. And then a few years later, I ran a double marathon in 2012, 52 mile run from Pompano Beach to Miami to honor the workers who built Marlins Park. And I raised $600,000 that day. So that was fun. It took me a few months to recover, but it was good. And then I was trying to think of what's next. How can I up the ante because I can't go to the Rolodex. Can I say Rolodex on a podcast? You could say whatever you want to say. You could talk about file folders and you could talk about uh, <laughs> gramophones and, uh, you know, we could use, uh, what do you call it, phrenology to solve medical problems, whatever you want. So just know this. I was going through my Betamax tapes and I found some old cassettes and I decided I'm trying to think of anything so old that it makes me crazy. But so I went through the Rolodex and I said, yep. I, in order for me to raise more money, I better do something even crazier. So I heard of this thing called the World Marathon Challenge, which is literally running seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. And I put together a group of 16 people to do it with me, all people who I know, some people from Survivor, who I was on Survivor with, yep. some people from the Marlins like Jeff Conine, well, used to be on the Marlins, some current Marlins people like Mike Hill, uh, former Marlins people like PJ Laello and myself. Uh, the race director for the Boston Marathon, Dave McGilvery, a guy with Parkinson's, Brett Parker, a girl with one leg, Sarah Reinardson, a teacher in East Hampton named Karen Nelson, a dentist in Iowa, just all sorts of people who I know. So I was sort of the circle, and then there were concentric circles around me. And we all flew to Antarctica and ran this race. And it's the craziest thing ever. We raised over a million dollars. We just got back. And we're all swollen and bruised and hurt. And I'm a little, I'm better than most, worse than some, but I broke a rib so I can barely breathe right now. But Holy I didn't want to keep this podcast because any time with you, Jonah, is time better than just being on pain med, you know, sucking my thumb, which is what I've been doing for the last two days. Listen, pain meds are very good and very underrated. I don't think you're overestimating my ability here. But let's, okay, so uh, several questions. First of all, 
which is the charity of choice? You know, a million here, 600 there, 250 there. Are you consistent with one particular cause that you like the most? You mentioned Marlins Workers as one. Obviously, I assume that was more of a one-off. Is it a cancer thing? Is it an animals thing? What are you most into? I'm into cancer. I'm into ALS. I'm into Parkinson's. I'm into MS. I'm into the Boys and Girls Club. I'm into Jewish Federation. Yep. Uh, I'm into my my summer camp, my Jewish summer camp called Camp Interlochen. I'm into the MR8 Foundation, which is Martin Richard, the little boy who died during the Boston Marathon bombing in 13. Oh, wow. So we raise money for 10 different charities uh, doing this triple seven. Okay, so. And I'm going to get a really big tattoo now. Uh, this is, how many tattoos? So you have a tattoo after every one of these crazy experiences, whether it's Iron Man's or Ultras or whatever. My buddy, I have a buddy, by the way, one buddy who does similar stuff. He did the, he's done, uh, what, Comrades? He's done all this stuff. Iron Man's ultras and stuff, and his name is also Dave, and he's also insane. Um, but he does not get tattoos. How many tattoos for you at this point? Um, I have three tattoos, but only one can be seen in public. I got you. Okay. So what is Antarctica like in January? Or ever? Most, <laughs> most of us will never go to Antarctica. What does it look like? Is it Arctic? Uh, see it penguins? Is ice it like? and yeah. snow and cold and windy, and we were on a Russian scientific base. I shit you not, this is what happened. We landed. Oh, I don't know if I can say that. You can say whatever you want. We landed on a runway of ice. That's all there is, is ice. Yeah. And you're not worried about going off the runway like at LaGuardia where you end up in the river (laughs) because the plane will eventually stop because the runway is about 70 miles long. (laughs) So there's no issue at all. So no one's nervous. Okay. You get off the plane and all you see are about 15 Russian guys who are there to help do the marathon, um, set it up and everything. The marathon actually was run around the tarmac. It's not really a tarmac. It was around the runway. Wow. Basically. Senior. Six laps around the runway. And these Russian guys hadn't seen women in 15 months. Oh, my God. Let me just make sure you're socializing that properly. <laughs> so we get off the plane with a Playboy cover model. Oh boy. A survivor winner. Okay. A woman with one leg who's really pretty, who's been ESP on the body magazine. Okay. Just a bunch of attractive women. And we get off and these Russian guys, they were offering their coats, their pants, their, their outer pants, of course. Yes. There's no pants. More on that later. It was, it was hilarious. So we all like stayed very close. Because I was a little worried, actually, because I felt responsible for my group. Yeah. And after the marathon, we had to eat like goulash before we got on the plane to go to South Africa to run the marathon in South Africa. Yeah. And they were being really nice, but they didn't speak English. We didn't speak Russian, but they certainly spoke the language of lust. So I was a little worried, but it all worked out great. Aye, aye, aye. Okay. Well, that's an interesting one. Um, I, Antarctica, I'm still having a hard time with that one. That's really interesting. So, you know, maybe we can back up a minute and and take this back to the beginning. You know, you talked about being ordinary, not being able to dunk a basketball, not being able to do that, that your height challenge and all these things. But I, I feel like there are there are lots of people who are five, eight or nine. There are lots of people who are not rocket scientists. There are lots of people that are not <laughs> Giancarlo Stanton. It still has to take a certain drive to get into all this. When you were growing up in New York City, was it, you know, in high school, were you trying to get into long distance running when you went to no, college? No, I could actually, yeah. It's funny, Jonah. I can pinpoint this insanity to one thing. Okay. I actually can pinpoint everything I've done in business, um, from starting a company in, in Paris delivering newspapers to being on Wall Street to the Expos, yep. uh, to the Marlins. 
I can actually all go back to a guy named Steve Trembley. I don't think I've ever said his name publicly. Okay. Um, Steve Trembley was a, uh, a teacher at Horace Mann High School. Yeah. And was the coach of the freshman basketball team at Horace Mann. Okay. And I loved basketball. I was a huge Nick fan. I went to Nick games from 1977, literally to 1994, almost every game. Travel with the team. Um, just, I, I literally would set my social schedule according to Nick games. Patrick Ewing was just is, was and is my favorite athlete. I loved watching Fraser Monroe. Oh wow. My number one sports highlight of all time. And I've been in a World Series winning locker room. Yeah. My number one sports highlight is the Knicks winning game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals in 1994, beating the Pacers and Reggie Miller 94 to 90, because it meant that for the first time in my life, the Knicks were going to the finals. And that feeling is a feeling that I have kept with me forever. And I actually tried to replicate that feeling running baseball teams, but we'll talk about that later. But my ninth grade teacher and the freshman coach, I tried out for basketball and I'm the guy who shot free throws, you know, hundreds of free throws, hundreds of jump shots, practiced dribbling with my left hand and my right hand, really tried to make up for my, the fact that I was diminutive and I didn't make the team. And I had a really good tryout. And he told me the reason I didn't make the team is that he was going to take a guy named Josh Price. I've never said his name publicly. Okay. Josh Price was like six feet in ninth grade. He was horrid. <laughs> couldn't dribble, couldn't shoot. He couldn't do anything except be tall. And he made the team instead of me. And I said to the coach, I said, you've made a huge mistake here. <laughs> And, uh, I left it at that. Oh. And I've used that as drive really since that. I was, God, I was 14 years old. And, um, people would say, just get over it. But everyone has a failure in, in their life. And I've had many failures. And actually all of the failures I've ever had are the reasons I've ever been successful. Makes a lot of sense. I get it from the perspective of motivation. Steve Trembley, Josh Price. The Josh Price vendetta lives on, obviously. The faces you're it making. It certainly does. Josh Price's name. Well, and I get that. You know, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think we should talk about that, that kind of climb in the business world. Um, you worked on Wall Street and that was obviously, you know, going to Morgan and doing that, I would think would be a formative experience. Um, but you know, there are a lot of people that end up doing that and they don't end up trying entrepreneurial stuff. And I know that you talked about the um, news of the news travels fast company that where you were trying to come up with a newspaper business and so forth was were your twenties and thirties just spent trying to figure out, okay, what is it for me? What, what am I destined to do? Did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up at any point? Yeah. I wanted to be the point guard for the Knicks. Okay. Uh, well, no, whenever my parents would fight or whenever I was upset or whenever yeah. I had a bad dream, my whole life to this day still, I close my eyes and imagine being the point guard for the Knicks. And it brings me to this place of total calmness and happiness. It's like my happy place. Nice. So I knew that I didn't know what I was going to do. I went to law school because I didn't know what to do after college. I wanted to work for a friend of mine's father making $15,000 selling um, uh, literally perforated boxes. And he wouldn't hire me. And so I said, all right, I'm just going to go to law school. And I loved law school every day of it. Um, I never was scared in law school. I had fun every day. Uh, people hated me because I skipped a lot of classes and I did fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just loved it. I'm actually the chairman of the board of my law school. Can you imagine that revenge right now? 
But I went to law school, passed the bar, and I and I immediately went to Europe to start that company delivering newspapers because of the Knicks. When I was in Europe growing up, I couldn't get a Knicks score. There was no USA Today. There was no CNN International. There was nothing. Yeah. All they had was the International Herald Tribune, and the scores were always a day late. And I said, there's got to be a better way. And I found a way to get the New York Times to Europe same day. Buying tickets to sports and concerts yeah, can be a pain in the butt. Everyone knows it. But not with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is fantastic. Longtime sponsor of the podcast. Smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. I have used them so many times. Concerts, baseball games, hockey games. They're terrific. Really, really easy to use. It's a color-coded map, so you can see, oh, I want to sit in this section. Well, it looks like the best deal is actually over here. Here's the best bang for the buck. I can sit in the bleachers. I can sit behind first base. I can sit over here if I'm going on a concert. Whatever it is you can possibly want, they're analytically inclined. They make it easy to use, and they help you get the best ticket for the best price. It is fantastic. And get this, listeners of the Jonah Carey Podcast, while you download the SeatGeek app and you enter the promo code Jonah today, and you can get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. That's all you need to do. Download the free SeatGeek app. Enter the promo code Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, but you should know that. And you will get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Thank you so much to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Yeah, and I guess it's an interesting thing, too, in the in the start of the tech era where it's, oh, delivering newspapers is going to be the cutting-edge thing, you know? You've got uh, Mark Cuban on broadcast.com. I'm going to do stuff on the internet. You're going as old school as possible, which is really interesting, but trying to fill a need. Well, by the way, there, yeah. this is back in the early 90s, Joe. That's true, a little and early. The internet, to me, didn't exist. That's true. I, uh, I was going to comment on... The reason why I Sorry. left the business and joined Wall Street yes. is that I realized quickly that people were willing to read newspapers on a screen, which I thought to be impossible. What I was selling was the ink of the New York Times. I was bringing it to really rich people on the beaches in the south of France or expats in Paris or Geneva or Brussels, anywhere in Europe. And I thought that everyone would want the ink. It turns out people were just as happy to have carpal tunnel syndrome and no ink. Yeah, apparently. Uh, and it's not long afterwards from Morgan to end up, uh, you know, linking up with the Montreal Expos. And your ambitions were, of course, in basketball. Now, circumstances obviously created that it was going to be baseball. Uh, but if you and Jeffrey – well, let's say that you were calling the shots as opposed to Jeffrey. It was 100% your decision. Would you have preferred to buy into a basketball team rather than a baseball team if basketball was your first love? Well, that's not – I mean, for sure, except one of the things I fear – and I love movies. I do watch a movie every day. I've never wanted to invest in a movie or work on a movie or be in a movie. Makes sense. Although I was in one movie in a, The Three Stooges because I don't want to uh, – I don't want to know how it works. Oh, Because okay. then it ruins my fandom. Hmm. So baseball to me – remember, I was at Morgan Stanley when Jeffrey asked me. He was married to my mother at that time. Yeah. They're no longer married. They've been divorced for – Oh God, I think 13 or 14 years. Right. But at that time he was married to my mother and I was just on Wall Street and he said, Hey, any interest in helping with the uh, purchase of the expos? So I was at Morgan Stanley working with a lawyer and another banker just doing the documents. Uh, and then he asked me to, you know, help run it for a few days, few weeks. And that just turned into years and decades. Um, but it was never my intention. Um, I was never a big baseball fan. Uh, but it really was a business uh, for me, and I was responsible for handling the asset for, for Jeffrey, and that's always was my responsibility and trying to 
do right by fans as best as I could in, a, in an industry that's really hard to get right, um, depending on, on where you are and how you're doing it. But would I have liked to work in basketball? Probably not. Hmm. Well, debt to equity, I want to ask you, but I want to get to the nitty gritty here because it's not often that I get people on the podcast who could talk about what that looks like a franchise purchase. In those days, it was Batsilig who was the commissioner. It seemed like debt to equity wasn't as religiously upheld, I guess, as it is now, you know, that maybe the rules were a little bit looser, but you could tell me, you know, you guys are trying to put together your bid. You're trying to figure it out. Which transaction are you talking let's, about? Let, let's start with the expo. So, I mean, you're trying to get into that. And of course it was okay. a minority stake, but you've got to, you know, prove, okay, we've got this much liquid. We've got to make it happen. Here's dead. Here's the situation. And of course it is with a consortium, but what does that look like? What is the nitty gritty? And you can feel free to go into business details and so forth. What does it look like when you're trying to buy into a baseball team, at least when you're talking about the late 90s in MLB? Yeah, I want to set this up for you just so we're all very clear. Yep. I believe that baseball and the commissioner would have chosen anybody <laughs> to buy the Expos, anybody right. other than Jeffrey, meaning anybody from Montreal, Canada, any one of the limited partners back then in Canada would have stepped up. They would have gotten the team in that many seconds. Wow. The fact of the matter is not all of the big companies in Montreal who owned little pieces, whether it was, I mean, who can remember back Jean then? Jean Coutu, um, Bell, Canadian Jean Pacific. Jean Coutu, yeah. Steve Bronfman. Yeah. Um, on and on. Desjardins, the yeah. bank. Jacques Menard was a banker for – uh um one of the investment banks there. Yep. Anyone could have taken the team because as you recall back then, there was a fight going on between the limited partners and Claude Brochu, yep. who was the general partner. Mm-hmm. And Claude Brochu agreed to sell his general partnership. And baseball's preference was to have one of the limited partners buy it. And it only took, lit- literally, it only took 12 million US. That's right. That was it. Yes. And no one stood up except for Jeffrey. Nobody. I needed to have had 12 million US because I feel like we would still be talking about the Expos to this day. It wasn't, it wasn't a big. You have no idea. By the way, <laughs> yeah. a, a little funny note. We'll get to the Marlins. Yeah. In 2002, when the franchise swap happened, yeah. Expos to baseball, Marlins to Jeffrey, the Red Sox to John Henry. Yeah. If any local person in Florida had stepped up to buy the Marlins from John Henry, anybody, they would have gotten the team. Not one local person stood up. Not Jorge Mas, not any of the guys who all wanted the team in 2017 when it was sold to Jeter and Sherman. Right. Nobody stood up to try to tackle Miami. John Henry told baseball he was leaving Miami. He wasn't building a ballpark, and he was selling the team no matter what. He wouldn't own the team for another day. Wayne Huizinga tried and did not want to stay in baseball. Couldn't get a ballpark built. They tried everything, Jonah. But Jeffrey was willing to try. And then we got a ballpark built and, and we got a World Series championship and we built some value there. Um, but it's, it's hard. But running a team in Montreal, running a team in Miami, these are not turnkey markets where you just start the season and all of a sudden everybody's at the ballpark. Well, but it, it also seems to be a function of a moment in time, right? That you could, 
forgive me for being cynical, but I feel like you could put a team in Sheboygan, Wisconsin right now and probably make money because, gee, you've got the BAM deal, which is $50 million per team. That's on top of previous BAM money. That's on top of national contracts. You can have not great attendance and succeed in Major League Baseball, but I guess in 1999 and 2002, people might not have had the foresight to see, certainly not with something like BAM, but even with national TV deals, that, hey, you could run a small market club and maybe win the World Series. You know, that these things could happen. I guess this was just too early for people to realize that, and that's why nobody stepped up. I think what people realized, actually, is gate revenue matters, but TV revenue matters more. Sure. Even back in '99, the big issue, and if you go back, we were criticized relentlessly in Montreal for taking uh, uh, off English radio. Uh, we were on French radio, which was the main language, obviously, in, in Quebec and Montreal. Yeah. But back then, people were being paid. Teams were being paid to be on radio, and Montreal wasn't. And we could not get a TV deal in Montreal. RDS, Réseau des Sports, yeah. they, I met with them. They said they'd rather show curling than baseball. That's a <laughs> quote, and that's real. By the way. Claude Brochu, Jacques Menard, Steve Bronfman, all of them tried to get a TV deal in Montreal. None of them could do it. Yeah. TV revenue, is, even back then and now for sure, is bigger and more important than gate revenue. And Montreal just didn't have it. And Miami doesn't have it either with the lowest TV revenue in all of baseball. Yeah, it's a problem. Well, we're going to get to Miami more in a second, but that is a problem for sure. And just to put a finer point on it, and this is something that's corroborated not only by you, but, you know, local Montreal personalities, Mitch Melnick, other, I've talked to a zillion people about this, but my version of what I heard is that you guys went into a meeting with, I don't know if a CJD, whatever the biggest English radio station was, and said, here's games, here's games, let's work out a deal. This sounds good. Okay, we can't get TV, that's fine. Baseball is a radio sport, let's work something out, that's all fine, soon after you guys bought in. And they said, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, sounds great. You pay us $1,000 per game, and we will put your games on the radio. Is that accurate? We had to pay them. Yeah. I can't remember. It was so many years ago, whether it was 1000 Canadian. Someone I don't want to say what it was, yeah. but it was clear as day that we had to pay to be on English radio. Pay! It's just there was no way we were going to do it. And we made a stand, and we did with Dave Van Horn doing internet only back before internet radio was cool. Yeah, that's true. And Dave will talk. I have had Dave on the podcast. He's talked about that extensively. So that's interesting. So we go along. He used with, to carry around a briefcase, Jonah. <laughs> no, he's he. I wouldn't say that he regarded that season as his favorite necessarily, <laughs> but he he understood the ramifications of it, and certainly that he wanted to be broadcasting games. Um, I want to get into at least a little bit the, the deal with the limited partnership. You guys came in. And initially the stake was 24%. So essentially the team was being valued at 50 million US roughly. And you guys owned a $12 million stake. So r- roughly a quarter, just under a quarter. And then there were cash calls. And the cash calls basically said, listen, we can't run a major league franchise without money. It's impossible. You know, we just can't do this. We're getting onto the 2000s now. We need to figure out a way to, to have money. You guys ended up re-signing Vladimir Guerrero, which I think gets lost a little bit in the, in the history of, uh, baseball. Soon to be Hall of Famer, Vladimir Guerrero. Well, we signed Grant Floyd. We traded for Hideki Arabu the first year. We we tried to increase payroll a bit because Montreal, people complain about the fire sales in Miami. Miamians should go to Montreal and see oh, yeah. what's real when it comes to fire sales. No question. Um, that was the first original fire sale. <laughs> it definitely was. Um, well, maybe the Kansas City Athletics, I guess they used to sell their players to the Yankees. But other than that. Well, I'm talking recent times. No doubt. So you go to um, the partners. You say, hey, we need money. This is how it's going to work. 
and they just don't respond, right? I mean, you put you put it out there, and they just say, eh. And so you end up taking more control of the team because that's how a limited partnership works, correct? Walk me through that mechanism briefly. Yeah, so the way it works is that if you own 10% of a company and the company needs $10, you're responsible to put a dollar in. If you don't put the dollar in, then you're not going to own 10% anymore because someone else will put the dollar in. And now the company has $11 and your money is, your investment is not worth the percentage it was. So the way to, the way to picture it, this sounds silly, right? But picture you own a pizza shop and the pizza shop is worth a hundred grand. If I walk in there and I stick $50,000 into the pizza oven, literally, that pizza shop's now worth 150 grand because there's an extra 50 grand of cash there. Yeah. So if I need that cash to do something, but not every partner does it, then my percentage ownership of the pizza shop is going to go down. So all the limited partners had every opportunity to put money and they just never did. They took us to court for a year because they felt as though that they were wronged and they just lost every motion. They lost every count. They lost everything because all they had to do was put money in the way Jeffrey put money in and they just never did. And these were not poor people, by the way. No, Desjardins is a, a multi-billion dollar company. These are, these are Canadian gigantic companies. Bell, Jean Cachou, these are all big Jean Coutu, Stephen Bronfman. Yeah. We're not talking your ordinary schleppers here. No, that's absolutely true. So, um, and, and just to underline the point, in fact, what they brought is a RICO suit, which is a racketeering type of suit that you would typically bring up against the mafia, which was an interesting uh, <laughs> move at that point. So, and That's going to be a chapter in my book, John. Oh, I, I, the RICO suit will be interesting, no doubt about it. So I want to ask you, you know, they charged that it was a conspiracy. They said that when uh, Jeffrey bought into the team, the goal was buy in, strip it down for parts, sell, get out, kill the team, sell it to MLB, that this was uh, uh, orchestrated with Bud Selig, that, okay, this is what's going to happen. So what... What was the disconnect? Why would they think that versus you guys saying, all right, it's a business investment. We have a chance to get into baseball. What what would cause that gulf between the two sides? Because one party believes, okay, well, we're just making an investment. The other party believes, oh, yeah, you know, we're right. going to take down Tony Soprano. Oh, that's pretty easy. It's uh, every one of those Canadians were just covering their ass. That's it. They were local community people. And they didn't want to be known as cheap people who were not willing to invest in the local baseball team. So they tried to say and blame everything on us, but it, it, it was crazy. And obviously they lost completely because Rico, I mean, it, it, it was so sensational. They called a press conference to announce this yep. and they tried to get as much publicity as they could to make me and Bud Selig and Jeffrey out to be literally like Tony Soprano or Robert De Niro. And, um, it was preposterous, but with Google now, it still comes up because people see it. It's weird, right? You can accuse anyone of anything and it gets in the Google. And when it's corrected or there's a result that proves that incorrect, that's sort of on page five of your search. But the original sort of inflammatory thing is on page one of your Google search. So I'm still angry about it because it's bullshit. The fact that they would do that, why not just take the microphone and say, hey, we don't want to invest any more money in Montreal Expos. If someone else is willing to do it locally, please stand up now because the team is not going to make it here. Just own it. Be a man. The problem is those people were not men. They were so busy trying to be something they weren't 
and it, it cost him. And I feel terribly about it. I feel terrible. I loved Montreal. I loved my two and a half years there. I loved the people. I loved the, I loved the food. I loved the culture. I mean, the winter weather was brutal. Yeah. But I loved it. And I'm, I'm as sad as anyone that it didn't work there. But my job was to be pragmatic and my job was to try to take the Titanic and see if there was any way to plug any holes. Because people forget when we took over in 99, there had been five years of disaster in Montreal. Literally disaster. Yep. So to me, we were the last man standing and we gave the limited partners, the Canadians, a chance to, to step up and see if we could get a stadium built, to see if we could get a good TV deal. I couldn't get anyone to even go to a meeting with me. I wanted to go with the Bronfmans and the Menards and the Coutus and lean on, like any good Tony Soprano guy would do, <laughs> lean on the guys and say, hey, show our games, get us some revenue. But it never worked. Right. And and just to emphasize one more point on this, and this predates you, but when Charles Bronfman put the team up for sale uh, and ultimately sold in 1991, it was bought by – Stephen Bronfman was not involved at that point. But the yeah. rest of those partners were all involved, the Desjardins and Bell and gigantic companies. And uh, I wrote about this in, uh, in Up, Up, and Away. Um, there's a guy named Raymond Sear. Raymond Sear was a big shot at Bell. And, uh, Brochu went into the room, you know, trying to figure out what was, how the deal was going to work and basically begged this guy, Raymond Sear. Bell is a gigantic, gigantic, like, it's like AT&T basically. And Raymond Sear is there and, and Brochu says, Hey, you know, I know you got a lot of money. Can you give us some money? And he says, lights up a cigar, says, here's $5 million. Never bother me again. Never. This is in 1991. They built the best collection of talent in all of baseball. In 93, 94, they had the best record in baseball. Then there's the strike. They dismantle the entire team. Throughout all this, none of these guys are contributing any money. So it's not just that you and Jeffrey were portrayed as scapegoats. Claude Brochu was a scapegoat, too. Claude Brochu was pulling out all the stops to try to make it work. And local businessmen threw him under the bus and decided that he's crappy, too. Does it mean that you and Jeffrey were perfect? No, of course he made mistakes. No. Does it mean that Claude was perfect? Heck no. That's, he definitely made none mistakes, of us. too. But these dudes sucked. They did nothing to try to help the team for, what, 1991 to 2002 until then. That's the reason there's no team in, in Montreal. It has nothing to do with Bud Selig or you or Jeffrey or Brochu. It's these dudes who bought the team from Charles Bronfman who decided that they wanted nothing to do to it, with it. Just to point, uh, put a further point on it that predates you, just because I'm sure my audience would want me to weigh in on this. That's the reason there's no team. That's a fact, and uh, we wouldn't be—we wouldn't have been in baseball if the limited partners had stepped up yeah. when Trump wanted to sell. There would have been no need to sell to an American at all, ever. It would have been in Canadian hands, and it still would have been. No doubt. All right, so how does the opportunity come up with the Marlins? You talked about this merry-go-round. Henry wasn't happy with the stadium situation. I mean, that, that, that whole transaction was certainly interesting because what ended up happening was – Ultimately, you guys took the sale price from the Marlins along with a loan from MLB. You were able to buy, from the Expos, you were able to buy right into to the Marlins. The fishiest part of that thing to me wasn't that. It was that Henry wasn't the high bidder on the Red Sox, but he ended up with the Red Sox because we needed to make it neat and clean. And then, of course, uh, the Expos go over to the ward of, uh, wardship of MLB. So how is this proposed to you? Are you guys summoned to Park Avenue? How does this all come to be? Yeah, so this is another... 10 chapters in the book. Yes. It became clear, uh, this is during the time of contraction. Right. And don't forget that the rumored contract, contraction teams, say that 10 times quickly, were the twins and the expos. Right. 
because the twins were playing in um in that dome yeah. whose name I forgot. Metrodome. The Metrodome. Oh my god. They were playing in the Metrodome and needed a new ballpark and they could not get one done. And Carl Polad was a very, very wealthy man, was the owner of the team, and did not want to put the necessary money in and didn't feel he had to, and they couldn't get financing. There was no stadium in Montreal, and there was contentious collective bargaining with the players' union back at that time, but no work stoppage. So contraction was something that was real, maybe. Was it leverage? Maybe. Could it have ever happened? Maybe. But let's talk about it. It never happened. No, and it wasn't going to. It became clear that Jeffrey, as a new owner, joining baseball in 99, would not be allowed to move the Expos to D.C. and take that that increase in value for himself. Right. It became clear that the owners wanted to get the sale price, get the expansion price or the moving price, if you will, from getting the Expos out of Montreal into uh, Washington, which was the logical market for the Expos to go to. The Twins, after contraction disappeared, were able to figure out a ballpark deal, but the Expos never were. Right. So we knew that the Expos were going to move, and we knew we were not able to move the Expos. So we said, all right, we are willing to buy another team. Uh, let's talk about teams that are available. It became very clear that the Miami Marlins were available. They were an underperforming team in a really important market to Bud Selig because he expanded into Tampa and Miami, and both were not working well at that time. Uh, argue, I could argue that they're not working well in this time either, but back at that time. And, uh, John Henry was a, was a, um, a good soldier as a small market owner back in the day, ironically enough, given where he is now and what he does now. Yeah. But back in the day, he was a small market owner who was really advocating on behalf of small markets and low revenue teams, but he was not staying in Miami, no matter what. He wanted to step up and get another team. The original team that he looked at in the swap were the California Angels. Really? Interesting. Yep. Or were they called the Los Angeles Angels then? No, I think California they were still California, Angels. yeah. God, I can't remember which Angels, but it was the California Angels. I'm dating myself. Yeah, that's okay. And we talked about different player swaps and who, which players. We wanted to keep Vladimir Guerrero and bring him to Miami. John Henry wanted to keep Josh Beckett and bring him to California. And on and on and on. And it became clear that there was not going to be a deal to buy the Angels. Um... And we were not willing to pay for the Marlins what John Henry wanted. Right. What John Henry wanted, so just so you know the numbers, and this is all public, mm-hmm. John Henry bought the Marlins, call it for $130 million. Yeah. He then put in $28 million into the team. It could be 140 plus 18. It could be 120 plus 38. None of it matters except for the the end number of his investment into Miami was $158 million. Right. And he wanted that number from someone who would buy the Marlins back in 2002. He was right. not willing to lose money. I said to baseball, I said, well, the Marlins aren't worth 158. We're not willing to pay 158. Um, you're willing to pay us 120 for the Expos? You're not letting us move to Washington or wherever the Expos could move? Fine. We'll pay 120 for the Marlins. And John Henry said, that's unacceptable. I won't take 120. 
Right. So we said to baseball, not our problem. Find a local guy. Find someone else. We've got the Expos. We'll hold on to the Expos then. If you want to contract us, contract us, and we'll negotiate contraction. We'll talk about maybe moving. But hey, if you want to do a deal, here's the deal. It's 120. But John Henry said, forget that. It's got to be 158. So we sat at Park Avenue, and that's where we – um I'm only wincing because I can't breathe with my broken rib. I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. And uh, We're doing this via by, by Skype, by the way, for people who don't know. Go ahead. Yes. And David can't see me, but I'm not wincing or doing anything. I'm just – I'm doing this I, I can't – it's been the weirdest thing. Skype I've only been strange. looking at the camera. Once in a while, I see my mouth and eyes move and my forehead wrinkle, but that's about all I can see. <laughs> no but problem. in any case, yeah. we then agreed that we'll do 120 for the Marlins – but Henry needed an extra 38. So we went to baseball and said, hey, baseball, you give Henry 38. And if we ever get a ballpark in Miami, which would increase the value of the team and make it worth the 158, right? then we'll pay you back. And that's how that deal happened. And it, and it ended up no players moved. We kept Beckett. The Nationals kept um, Guerrero, or the Expos kept Guerrero, yeah. um, if you will. And um, that was it. And ironically, Vladimir did end up going to the Angels, so that could have been John Henry's he guy in the end, did. too. He certainly, certainly did. did. And he's going to go in the Hall of Fame as an Angel. I'm sad. I wish you were going in as an expo. I mean, people have broached this with me, and, you know, he was very good as an Angel. He won an MVP there. The Angels were a very successful team at that time. He had better overall numbers with Montreal. It's not like Expos fans are barred from going to Cooperstown this summer. I will be there. I will Probably not wear a media hat. I'll probably wear an expose hat, and we'll get there. We'll get to where we need to go. But it's, it's he nice was so he... special. Um, I've been so lucky. I've had Stanton and Miguel Cabrera. Yeah, I was training with Mark McGuire. Um, Vladimir Guerrero was different than them all. He just was. It sounded the ball off his bat sounded different. Everything about him was different, and uh, it was so great to watch him every day. Wow. People were terrified of that guy. <laughs> you didn't, you just, the ball would whistle by your head. It was unbelievable. Um, so let's get into the Marlins era a little bit. And you and I have talked before and what the conversation that we always have, you know, because the media will say whatever they want to say. And I have never really had much of an issue about the Expos era. To me, it's about the Marlins stuff. And specifically, it's about the threats to move the team, you know, in the name of getting a stadium. And, and from a business standpoint, why would you not do that? That totally makes sense. That's within your your bag of, of your tool belt or whatever. You could say, hey, we're going to move the Marlins to San Antonio if you don't give us a stadium. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And what I struggle with to mentally reconcile is, you know, and I wrote a piece about Jeffrey a few years ago for Grantland basically saying, the guy's shrewd. You might hate the guy, but he's shrewd. This is what it comes down to. This is how MLB system, this is how he set it up, that you make demands or threats you get what you want eventually, and if the local populace suffers, then so be it. So when you're going through this and you're saying, all right, we're going to move to San Antonio, we're going to do this, is that like the MLB contraction gambit, or were you really prepared to put the stuff in moving trucks and get on down the road? We really didn't want to move. Okay. I don't think there's a market that was better than Miami at that time. There was no stadium deal that, that we were going to be able to do quickly or no local broadcast deal. Um, I was always bullish on the Miami market back then, and uh, we just needed leverage. We had no yeah. leverage. And you know what's funny? Everyone talks about baseball. Are you familiar, and I, I, I know your listeners are for sure, yeah. with what Amazon's doing right now? Of course. They might move to uh, the town that I currently live in, which is Denver. So 
great. I love where your head's at. Yeah. Because in Miami, they think they might move to Miami. Yes, right. Now, do you know what the, do you think Denver is giving them any incentives to come to Denver? I would hope that they are. I would think that they are. No. Guaranteed. Yeah. Now you say you hope that. Why do you hope that? I don't hope because that. That's I'm... a public handout to a company owned by shareholders that you may not be one of. That's correct. I should say, uh, I think that rather than I hope that. So that's certainly the case. The argument, of course, that there's job creation here, that if they move to Denver, then people will move there, will live, uh, work for them. Whereas if the Marlins build a stadium or if they're in San Antonio or Miami, you've got temporary workers who are hawking popcorn, but there's not actually that much of a job creation mechanism for a baseball team because it's a seasonal sport. That's that's the traditional argument. No, that's a good argument. Yeah. So therefore, you have to look at what the incentives are, what right. the value of those of incentives are. And you have to look at the role of government. One thing I've never really understood is everyone complains about the role of government and public financing of ballparks. Um, that's the government's job to make decisions like that, whether they're going to finance museums or convention centers or whether they're going to give incentives to other private companies or public companies to move into their community. That's what chambers of commerce and business councils and governments do every day all around the country. The only thing a community has to do if they don't want to have a ballpark is just say no. That's it. It's pretty easy, actually. You just have to be Nancy Reagan. But what's the consequence of that? Right. The consequence is either you call the bluff of the owner and Amazon moves to Denver anyway because they want it to be there. Yeah. Or the Marlins build a ballpark privately anyway because the Marlins want to be there. Or you have to be prepared for the Marlins to leave or for Amazon to go to Miami. If you're prepared for what happens after you say no, then just say no. The fact is with the Marlins, Jeffrey contributed about 33% or about $150 million of the stadium cost. Yeah. Uh, the team still loses money, did lose money, forget what Deadspin had for those couple of years. Overall, it is a losing proposition due to the lack of revenue. The government decided having a ballpark in Miami mattered, and the timing was right for a deal to be cut. Could another deal be done like that today? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but they're trying in Tampa. If they don't get a ballpark in Tampa... Tampa's not going to be there. If they don't get a ballpark in Oakland, Oakland's not going to be there. It's that simple. I'm not saying it's right or wrong because that's never been my role. Right. My role was to advocate for the owner of the team and to increase the asset value of his team. That's what I was hired to do, and I've never apologized for that. It's a for-profit business. I've never apologized for that, but it's also a part of the community. So all the philanthropy that, that baseball teams do – all of the great partnerships we have in the community, what it means to live in a place that has professional sports. How come Montreal wants a baseball team back so badly? What do you think the reason is? Well, I think it's nostalgia. I don't think it's a good deal. I, I would want it back more than anybody. But you know what? If there was one cent of public money that was put into it or one cent above the actual utility, whether it's tangible or intangible, I would not be in favor of it. I'd want it I'll bet you a dollar, Jonah, right now. Yeah. Montreal will only get a team when they agree to be partners in a ballpark and a TV deal. Oh, I don't disagree with you, but I'm period. Saying, but but what I'm saying is you could do a proper economic study and say, okay, here's what it looks like. Here are the seasonal workers. Here are the construction jobs that are done from a new ballpark. Here's the intangible value. I'm not saying there's no intangible. You try to quantify it with, you know, proper number crunchers and you say, here's our number. 
And it just feels to me that we don't get to that number. That that's sort of the issue. And you so, never do. You never do. You never do. It always ends up being that the public ends up paying more. And the issue is, what is the public? Montreal's the metro market is like three and a half million people. How many of those are going to be Expos fans? One hundred and fifty-seven thousand, probably something like that. Everybody else is getting effed, David. That's the problem. And I'm a gigantic baseball fan. I would give my left whatever for a team there. But I would never ever want it to be something that. that screws a local populace. Well, okay, I wouldn't want it to be something that screws a local populace. That's what it comes down to. So, I listen. I don't have any. I don't live in Miami or whatever. I don't live in Tampa. But I think that is the issue. That we're, and I, I get it from your standpoint. Again, you're just trying to increase the ask, increase the uh, asset value. That's why when I'm writing about Jeffrey as a Machiavellian or whatever, Machiavelli is trying to be successful. He's doing his own thing and trying to figure it out. The people that I'm pissed off about are the people of Dane County. And I don't mean the people who live in Dane County. I mean the elected officials who make this deal that is probably not going to benefit the community. They're not going to get the money out of that stadium that they should have. You guys Do you know the amount of money in Miami, though, Jonah, that was put into the uh, Performing Arts Center? Uh, Go ahead and tell me. So the Adrian Arch Performing Arts Center is this glorious building in downtown Miami um, used by fewer people than use Marlins Park, even on the down here tremendous amount of public funding into that. There's no rhyme or reason why, except for a major league city, pun intended, has performing arts centers, it has convention centers, it has sports teams. The reason why only 157,000 people in Montreal like the Expos, but why baseball should be there, is that the other 2.843 million people, they want to live in a place that is a major league city in every way. It's why they'll support museums even when they don't go to museums, why they'll support parks even when they don't walk their dog in the park. It's about quality of life. It's about choices and options. And that's the decision that governments have to make every day, and they do. Well, and I think the fundamental issue, and again, this is me reiterating, this is not your job. This is government's job to figure it out. But ultimately, you talked about what happens if it doesn't work in Tampa, what happens if it doesn't work in Oakland, and what have you. Yeah, a team can leave. It happened in Seattle. They flat out took a stand. They said, no, we're not paying for this, and they moved to OKC. And some people are upset about it, and some people are saying, okay, you know, whatever. I'm good. I live in Bellevue or whatever. I don't need a team. I'm fine here, and that's totally fine. It's one of those things where if each local government gets together and says, all right, intangible value is lovely, but we need to take a stand – and you run out of cities who say, oh, my God, I'm desperate to have a performing arts center or whatever or an Amazon. That's where you're right. going to get to. That, that is the problem. I don't think that politicians are treating this as a rational dollars and cents issue. And to your point about the art center, a, a quick Google search, $470 million. This is in the Wikipedia entry, by the way. So I'm not doing a deep dive because we're in the middle of a podcast. It has, quote, spurred more than $1 billion in economic impact in the neighborhood. Has it? Really? Has it? I don't know about that. Could they have built a restaurant in that neighborhood if there wasn't a performance? Probably they could have built a This is all a shell game, and it's governments that are responsible. What frustrates me is if you are conservative, you know, if you are a Trump voter, or even if you're not a Trump voter, you're just a conservative person when it comes to politics, you would say, well, this is a waste of money. Whatever. You know, money should be, uh, we should be cutting taxes. We shouldn't be doing large expenditures. And if you're liberal, you would say, this is also a waste of money. It should go to kids or roads or hospitals or whatever. This should be the kind of thing that 100% of people, no matter what your stripe is, should say, all right, you want this, Mr. Laurier or Mr. Performing Yard Center or whatever? Pay for it, and we would love to have you. We think baseball super swell. We'll pay this much of it. Not that you have to pay the whole thing. We'll pay this much of it because this is what our consultant said is the reason. Again, that's not your fault. That's not Jeffrey's fault. That's not... 
Adrian Arsht, whoever that person is. It's not any of these people's fault. It's literally She's a philanthropist. Fault. Okay. If she contributed She's 470, a very good that, philanthropist. that's good for her if she contributed that money. That, that is the frustration. That is the issue. And I think it gets conflated because again, your job, you are a for profit person. You worked for Morgan. It's not, there's never been any, uh, mystery as to what you or Jeffrey or Al Davis or any Al Davis Jr., I guess, what, whatever his son's name is. All these people, that's what it's about. I have a business. I want to make more money. This is what Bezos wants. It's what everybody wants. Make more money. That's literally it. There's another point, Jonah, just so you know. Yeah. Uh, the money that Montreal will have to spend to get a team is more than it would have had to spend to keep it. And Seattle's feeling that too now because oh, they yeah. want it also. They want to get basketball back after having lost the Sonics. And it's going to cost them more. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, but that's because it's a sure investment now to some extent. First of all, I think we might be in a bubble, by the way. I think that that's, uh, we could get to that point because numbers have been going up and up, but TV contracts and so forth are much more mature and much more reliable uh, mm -hmm. now than they were before. So I think that's what it comes down to. Let's talk about um, the, well, you know what? Let's back up a second. What does it feel like to win a World Series? Hmm. Um, so I spent... Uh... Every year watching every celebration in every sport, yep. including hockey, always thinking, wow, what would it be like to be in that room? It was surreal when you're getting the trophy from Bud Selig, when you're drinking champagne with the guy who just threw a six-hit shutout, Josh Beckett, yeah. um, who's 23 years old. And at the time, I was, I was 35 years old. And uh, you just think that it's perfect. But then all of a sudden it becomes uh, you spend the rest of your life chasing Amy. Yeah. And, and that's really what's happened. You want that feeling so badly again. Um, it's like a drug and it's really hard to get again. There's a few select teams and a few select people who get to feel it more than once. But it doesn't matter. You could win three world championships like the Giants and they want a fourth. The Yankees have won five. Brian Cashman wants to feel it again. Right. It's an addiction. And you, and you start to act irrationally because you want it so badly. You think the Cubs wanted to win one? <laughs> they did. But boy, they want to win a second even more. And it sounds counterintuitive and crazy, but it's, it's, it's definitely a surreal feeling to know that you've done it. You've done what you, what your goal was and you, you are the best in the world at that moment. You chased Amy and you actually landed her. There you go. It actually happened. <laughs> um, Tell me about the decision to sell the franchise. You know, the stadium had been built, uh, certainly plenty of capital appreciation, but there is no due date, right? You're a young guy. You know, if Jeffrey wanted to change it up and have you, you know, really take 100% charge of the team and just change, these things could have been done. He could have had it as a passive investment. Any of that stuff could have happened. What was the motivation to sell it at that particular point in time? Because it could have been sooner. It could have been later. You could have done it whenever. Yeah. So I got a call from Jeffrey who yeah. said, I'm ready to sell, sell the team. That's always what our relationship was. I was always, even when he was married to my mother, but certainly since the divorce, um, I worked for him. Yeah. I was, I was a contract employee and I did my job. And, um, do I wish that I were still with the Marlins? Spring training starts very soon. I don't know what day this is being shown, but, um, Wednesday. spring training First starts. First day. It'll be the same day. Yeah. 14th. Yeah. So, you know, spring training's today. Are we live? <laughs> and, uh, it, it, I miss it. It feels there's a void in my life. I've been doing spring training for 18 years. Yeah. 
Um, I would have stayed and, and tried and kept building and kept hoping. Um, but Jeffrey wanted to sell. And when he says it's time to sell, my job was to sell it to the, to the highest bidder. Um, so that's what I did. So you're going through the process and now you're on the other side, right? You're, you guys are sellers. You're not buying in. What did that look like? Cause there were so many different names that got floated. There were so many scenarios. Pitbull's going to own the Marlins. D Wade's going to come back and own them. Oh, lots of fun stuff is going to happen. For, sitting in that chair. Lunacy. Lunacy. So, so talk, walk us through it a little bit. What does that look like? Just courting offers, figuring out who's serious. That You're has to be a process. Taking out my whole book right now, Jonah, uh, uh, but it's, um. Well, this is a preview, I guess. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, I have, I'm not opining on Donald Trump in any way. Yeah. yeah. Um, unless you ask me to. That's fine. But, let me just say this. Fake news is real. Yeah. Um, and it is mind boggling to read stuff that you know for sure is not true. Right. You know it. It's not that you think it. You know it because you're the one doing it all. It was the most bizarre intersection of ego, insanity, and lack of true understanding of what it means to be involved in a business negotiation, I think that's the confluence of events that happened that led to the sale at when it when it happened and to who it was sold to. Um, I got lucky. I mean, I we didn't hire an investment bank. I did it on my own with with a lawyer, Wayne Cass from Proskauer, just the two of us. Literally, that's it. Wow. And it's not that we're brilliant. It's that more than one person wanted to buy something. So how do you know what something's worth, right? It's the old story. Something's worth what someone's willing to pay. I had no idea what the Marlins were worth. I only knew that many people wanted to own them. And um, every time there was bad publicity about me or about Jeffrey, it seems like people increased their bid because they felt as though that being apart from me and Jeffrey would be some sort of boon, which maybe it is. I don't even know. I'm not involved. Um, the Marlins may sell out every game this year. I hope they do. I have no idea. Right. But that's how it happened. It was just a lot of misinformation. It's a very complicated process. It's a large transaction. There'll never be another baseball team sold below $1.2 billion. No. Barring um, the first thing on the bubble, yeah. Given that the Marlins lost so much money and still that's the price, um, it, it's a good deal for baseball. It's a good deal for the owners. I told Jeter this back when I was still talking to him. I said, hey, if I had 1.2, I'd be buying the team because I know for a fact that in five years it will be worth more than 1.2. It's going to be painful um, because being in public hurts and being responsible for people's emotions hurts. And being the one who's looked at as toying with people's emotions, even when you don't mean to, that hurts too. Um, at the end of the day, we're all human, right? A lot of the negativity that, that I got, I pretended like it didn't hurt and I, and I still do pretend that. Of course you read it. Of course you, you know, you're sad about it that thinking that people assume you're the devil and people assume you're malicious when all I try to do is be philanthropic and helpful and people are just hateful. But on the other hand, when you're trying to be different and you dare to be different, you have to, you know, be content to be thought foolish and stupid. And I always was content to be thought that. Um, I want to go back. Only a few more here. I want to go back to the comment you made about the uh, Deadspin documents because, you know, people read them and they say, wow, the Marlins are making this much. And it says that they're, you know, they claim they're losing money. So what is the disconnect? What are people not knowing about the economics 
of baseball. People, people are focused. People saw EBITDA. Yeah. And um, frankly, you can wipe your ass with EBITDA because that's what that's what owners of teams do. Yeah. Because EBITDA is not cash. Cash is the only thing that matters. When I tell Jeffrey at the end of the year how much money he has to put into the team, here's how the conversation goes. Hey, Jeffrey, great year. We were 10 million in the positive EBITDA. Way to go. By the way, you need to write me a $13 million check. And he looks at me and he says, what are you talking about? I said, well, EBITDA doesn't matter. It's the cash that matters. So when you're positive EBITDA, that doesn't mean a thing. The other factor is that when you look at something only in a snapshot, you don't necessarily get a full picture. You get a snapshot of that day. Deadspin, it was just malicious. They chose a day in time and a year in time where the numbers were way better because our payroll was low because we were secreting money away to put into the ballpark and to pay down debt, which we had to do in order to borrow more money to put into the ballpark and to put into payroll. So you have to look at the overall investment. Jeffrey invested while well, he invested $158 million. This is the other brilliant part. He didn't buy the team for 158 and sell it for 1.2 billion. Totally incorrect. You have to look at how much money he put in since 2002, and you have to look at the level of debt on the team in 02 versus in 17. So I'm not saying he lost money because he didn't. I'm not saying it was a bad deal because it wasn't. I'm saying the way it's characterized as buying at 158 and selling at 1.2 billion is very, very um, incorrect and simplistic. For people who don't know, by the way, EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's something that's used in publicly before. traded companies. Before. Before. And it's a little bit different when you've got a baseball team. And that I don't disagree with. When it comes to debt service, you know, this is going on right now where the county is now upset because they're saying, hey, where's our restitution, Jeffrey? You need to pay us back. And he's saying, whoa, buddy, I just paid off my debt. This is where I'm at. And same thing's happening now with Bruce Sherman where – they take over the team and rather than saying, big splash, 1.2, here we go, we're going to buy stuff, they get rid of, in my opinion, the best outfield in all of baseball. And two of those trades, I don't think they got full value for, by the way, in prospects either. And it's all about slashing and slashing and slashing and, and trimming the debt. What are people missing when it comes to this talk of debt? Because, you know, from the outside, it could be, what do you mean? Here's this baseball team. You have attendance. You're getting money from BAM. You're doing this, this, this. Versus you guys, you guys, owners and the commissioner saying, oh, debt, we're swimming in debt. We constantly have debt. Well, every team has debt and the Marlins have the same debt on them now, at least at the time of the transaction. I don't know anything since October 2nd, but they have the same amount of debt on them as, as was on the team prior to October 2nd. So that $400 million number you've read is a, is a number that I've spoken about. That's the amount of debt that was on the team when Jeffrey owned it. And, um, that means that if the team were sold for 500 million, you take the 400 million and give it to pay your debt and you're left with 100 million. Right. So, um, the reason why, uh, payroll's down in Miami, you'd have to speak to Sherman and Jeter. Of course. I, but, but they've said publicly, and that's all I can base it on of what I've read is they're losing money. I know that we lost money in 2017. So I think it's fair to say that. They were going to lose an 18, though I don't know for sure. Right. And they want to run a responsible team. And plus, we couldn't win a damn game. We had a huge payroll, yeah. lost money, and sucked. Yeah. Great outfield, great everything. Couldn't pitch at all. The death of Jose hurt. It really did. Yeah. Injury to Wei Yin Chen was absolutely brutal. Edinson Volquez getting hurt 
was was bad last year. Um, just we couldn't pitch, and you can't outscore everybody every game. I still think about Jose. I understand that the circumstances. Think about him every day. I understand the circumstances of his death. It's not Roberto Clemente delivering goods to orphans. I totally understand that. I get that. But, you know, leaves behind a young daughter. And I, he was probably my favorite player. It wasn't that I was a Marlins fan or anything like that. I was just like, this guy. He's just so full of life. He's so terrific. And, and then he's gone. He's dead because he was so full of life. Yeah. Yeah. He's dead because he was free. And, um, He's dead because he was young and foolish. And those things come hand in hand. We don't understand Jose. I knew him really, really well. I didn't understand him at all. And we talk about that. I mean, it, this goes, you're bringing me back to a horrible time that I think about every day, actually. But he would tell me every day, you know, that I didn't understand him because I was born into freedom. And that's it. It had nothing to do with money. He never talked about money or privilege growing up. Yeah. It was just freedom. That's all. That was his concept. And, um, he felt so free in Miami that he mis- mistook. Is that a word? Yeah, let's go with that. I'm going to say he was gravely mistaken to confuse invincibility and freedom. Right. And he very much confused those two things. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this is the Yasil Puig story. To some, he's still with us, of course. But this is the story of anybody who comes up, you know, not having – a stable situation and, and, uh, you know, it's been reported before, but someday somebody's really going to blow the lid off of just what happens when people leave the island and who you might remain beholden to or people believe you're beholden to for years thereafter. I mean, the stuff about Puig, it sounds like that's people, real. Sounds like people are after him. I mean, let's, let's not mince words here. You know, that maybe the circumstances are a little different with Jose he came over as a teenager, famously reported, of course, that his mom took, t- capsizes, he saves her life. I mean, this stuff, but this is whatever the case, this is traumatic stuff. And, and even if you don't come from means in America or Canada or, or a free nation, <coughs> it just seems like a totally different situation. And, and Cuban ball players, there's just so much to be written about this stuff. And, and I, it's so different, Jonah. So different. I mean, listen, Dominican, they're poor, right? Venezuela, yeah. they're poor. There are parts of it. There's players from America um, who grew up poor. Of course. That's not freedom. That's not prison, right? It's totally different to have to play baseball in bare feet and, and use a sock as a glove yeah. and use a broom as a bat versus dealing with prison and dealing with the dictator and dealing with death and dealing with escape. It's just you can't compare it um, at all. So I have no idea what Puig or Fernandez go through or what they went through right. or what's in their mind or what motivates them. I, I don't have the first idea. And I never pretended to know. I only tried to make it so he understood that we loved him. He understood how important we were, that he was to Miami and to us. And we wanted him to know that we would be as helpful to him as we could. But we weren't helpful enough. And um, it is uh, – it was my worst day in baseball. Not even – I mean, it's not even close, obviously. But. Yeah, it's, it's it sucked. It still sucks. A um, couple more. I want to ask you about – well, this has been reported many times, but I've got you here. Let's talk about, you know, what went down with Jeter and, and how this all came to be, because obviously you were, you know, running many portions of the team for many years and there's going to be transition. It's, there's no, nobody who owes anybody anything. I mean, certainly new people take over and that's that. Uh, but it sounds like it wasn't handled super elegantly when it comes to how the transition was, uh, 
was made. How did that go down? I mean, is it different than what's been reported in terms of you and Derek and, and the end of your tenure with the Marlins, or, or was it pretty I much? I think that really, all yeah. I want to say now, yeah. um, you know, I, I am, uh, I'm still under contract with the Marlins for another year. Okay. Uh, so we can do another podcast in November. Okay. Gotcha. But, um, <laughs> but what I, what I would he say, and, I, and I've said this from the beginning, I never had any issue with Derek Jeter. Okay. I never did. He is a guy who wanted to put a group of people together to buy a baseball team. He wanted to run a baseball team. That's it. And um, I never believed that I was going to be retained. Um, and I it and I negotiated myself out of a job. And I was very aware I was doing it while I was doing it. And but that was my job. Uh, it's sort of like the uh, the person inventing the robot who's going to replace the person yeah. who's doing. Yeah. You do it because it's, that's your job. It's the right thing to do. It, he wanted the team sold. Jeffrey did. Jeter wanted to buy the team. And, uh, that was it for me. So I've been, uh, I've been out of baseball four months now. And, uh, who knows what tomorrow may bring. Uh, David can't talk about NDAs or non-disparagement clauses or whatever, but I'm, I'm, I'm winking at you guys. So that's that. Um, so one last question, which I do at the end of every podcast, and this will be an interesting one with you. I'll be interested to hear. I always ask the guest for a life tip. I ask the guest about, hey, what do you got? You're running marathons in Antarctica. It's all kind of, it's been an interesting life to say the least. And you could come up with one thing and it could be super serious and earnest or not at all, whatever you want. But I don't know, you go into an elementary school to talk to kids or maybe I meet you at a bar and I say, I'm Jonah, you say you're David. And I ask you what your deal is. What's your deal? I really hate the word no. Okay. I hate ant. Um, I love to floss. Uh, <laughs> you love to floss. You have to floss. If you ask me for one life tip, I would say floss. That'd well, uh, supposedly flossing is not just that your teeth look good. You can actually get strokes and stuff like that. It, it can affect vascular issues if you don't floss. This is what I've read anyway. That sounds like you got that from your Jewish mother. I, <laughs> but my, uh, my Jewish mother's in the next room visiting, actually, so I could go after that. <laughs> But I, I just, I, I think that life, there is so much to do. The hardest part about life yeah. is to recognize when it's time to hold them and when it's time to fold them. Hmm. And it's just a skill. It's a skill being willing to take a chance. It's a skill being willing to be different. It's a skill to be willing to be hated. It's a skill to be willing to, to lead. And I, uh, I've been the luckiest person in the world only in that I've been in the right place at the right time. The only talent I have is that I don't take no for an answer. I'm very persistent, and I'm willing to keep doing something even though everyone around me stops. I'm willing to keep going. I like that. It makes a lot of sense. I appreciate your candor. I don't know that this is, I mean, reputations are going to be what they're going to be, and I think that business is business you know it's these are the conditions that have been laid out in front of you and as you said you did the best that you could under those circumstances in multiple situations and uh man got to hoist a world series trophy and got to watch graham lloyd pitch i mean what else could you ask for david it feels like you've got the whole <laughs> the pet the whole uh, range of uh wow. the baseball experience so i appreciate your time thank you very much hey it's my pleasure thank you jonah have a good day you too 